Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. I want to talk a little bit today about inflation, Fed policy, and the implications for various markets. First, I want to reiterate that we should take the Fed at its word that the things that are looking at are is inflation data and employment data, which is uh, congruent with its dual mandate from Congress to seek price stability and full employment. Now, I've said before, these are not the things I would be looking at. I consider it a mistake. I would be looking at M2, money supply, growth or contraction, and financial conditions. But until I'm the Federal Reserve Chairman, I think we should take the current chairman at his word that you know the things they're looking at are inflation and employment data, labor statistics. It's my belief that the labor market faces is secularly strong, that demographics and the dynamics of labor force participation give secular strength to the labor market. And unless the economy just falls apart, demand for labor will be strong. And therefore, it's the inflation data that will dominate Fed policy over the next 6, 12, 18 months for sure, at a minimum. Now, as to inflation, I think what's interesting or challenging about this time is we are truly in the realm of the two-handed economist. So on the one hand, in the peak inflation, disinflation, dovish on inflation camp, you have a weakening economy, for sure. You have a contracting, rapidly contracting in terms of history, money supply. You have very tight financial conditions in terms of spreads, lending standards, banks' willingness to lend. You have economic slowing, and then you have a large amount of uh, new multifamily housing coming onto the market in the next handful of months, in addition to the lagging nature of the way housing price inflation is measured in the Fed data. So five pretty strong forces that argue for lower inflation. On the other hand, as we are in the realm of the uh, two-handed economist, you have secular labor shortages and a tight labor market and every sort of measurement of labor shows it's still tight. You have sporadic spot shortages, not only of labor, but of multiple things. It, It sort of appears that our infrastructure is not completely well adapted for supply and demand as sort of constituted see this as a result of some reversal of globalization and uh, onshoring, as it were. We don't really have the optimum infrastructure to do that, and I would include, you know, sort of a reversal of globalization, or at least an end to the trend of globalization and, and some reversal of globalization as one of the factors that inflation hawks could point to. And then finally, something that's not measured, I don't know how you can measure it, something that you know certainly 
has no data series, but what I would call prevailing business practice. So in classic sort of economic models, demand from the producer level is 100% elastic. If a dollar is the market price at 99 cents, you get all of the market, or at, and at a dollar one, you get none of the market. This is a gross idealization. And in fact, the overwhelming majority of products one buys are branded and the seller has a degree of pricing power, a degree of monopoly power, and businesses do not know exactly the nature of the demand curve for their products. So they don't know how much volume they can do at 95 cents, how much they would do at a dollar, and how much they would do at a dollar five. Now, clearly, you're better off doing 95% of your volume at 105 than you are doing 105% of your volume at 95. So businesses decide how they want to compete, where they want to compete, whether they want to pursue higher prices and giving up some volume or the other way around. And anecdotally, I think you can say that the prevailing business practice has shifted somewhat over recent years. One of the things businesses need to consider, it's not just calculating the utility function and difference curves for consumers, but the subjective experience of whether customers fear they're being treated fairly. People don't like being gouged. And in general, there's somewhat less price elasticity and sensitivity than you might think, than classic economic models might leave you to believe. But there are points at which consumers believe they're treated unfairly and businesses want to be careful not to cross that line. But inflation having happened, businesses feel freer to raise prices without the risk of alienated customers on the unfairness question. So I think there has been something of a shift in what you might call the prevailing business model away from volume towards higher prices, higher margin. And, you know, another sort of piece of anecdotal evidence, the capital markets clearly for a long time allowed, even rewarded companies that would spend money to get market share on the theory that, you know, we'll get profits later. Build market share now, build volume share now, achieve a dominant sort of position and raise prices later. Capital markets are much less receptive to that, and therefore, you know, people are in the, it's the later time in that model. The idea that just grabbing market share will reward you in the capital markets, that's certainly changed. Now this, I think, while this is completely immeasurable, this may well be the most important factor as to where inflation goes. And I think it leads to what I'm going to call the stagflation trap, which I think there's a reasonable chance we are in or could be in shortly by the stagnation stagflation trap. What I mean is a situation in which policies designed to curb demand and therefore presumably reduce inflation end up reducing supply faster than they reduce demand. This may be coming apparent, you know, I've talked before 
about housing costs, which are uh, 30% of CPI, and how clearly there is a shortage of housing, and clearly the way to reduce the cost of housing is to increase the supply, to build more of it and higher rates in the intermediate term, reduce supply, and in the intermediate term, uh, rising interest rates make it more expensive and less appealing to build additional houses and therefore reduce the intermediate term supply. And in the short term, given that all of America refinanced their mortgages over the last few years and everybody has a below market mortgage, people are locked into their houses and the um, supply of existing homes for sale is at record lows. I think we're left with what I would call three major scenarios, three classes of outcome, each with somewhat dramatically different implications for markets. The most sanguine, the most optimistic scenario is the disinflationary forces win. The commodity price rollover, the weakening economy, the contraction in M2, the tight financial conditions, that these serve to bring inflation down to below 3%. And the last quarter, the inflation rate annualized was, I believe, 3.2%, without the full lagged effects of the tightening of monetary policy that has occurred. So not an absurd argument to say that inflation is going to be below 3%. So that's scenario one. Now, until a week ago, this was the scenario that the interest rate markets were predicting. To your note, below four and an extremely flat yield curve, you know, sort of a prediction of a funds rate at the end of 2024 of 3% or lower. So that's scenario one. In that scenario, I think it's clear that the regional banks, the stocks of the regional banks, will be up dramatically, um, recovering all of sort of what they've lost in the last six months, uh, 50 plus percent returns, probably much more, if in fact that scenario comes to pass. Now, the home builders are near all-time highs and up for the year, but they're at extremely low multiples. I think the probability is that they would do extremely well, again, if that scenario comes to pass. They're trading at mid-single-digit multiples. In that scenario, you would see both, or are likely to see both increased earnings and expanded multiples. So that scenario, home builders and regional banks. The other two scenarios are what I might call moderate stagflation and a you know, sort of stubborn Fed, as it were. In inflation numbers come in above three, let's call it between three and four on kind of a consistent basis and across the varying measures and some indications of higher, maybe some indications of lower, but a consistent kind of uh, above 3% inflation rate and inflation expectations, which the Fed also seems to watch. In that environment, again, believing that the labor market is structurally strong and therefore 
Um, there can't really be a collapse in GDP. The Fed has one or two more rate increases, and we're in the higher, longer scenario. I think in that environment, equity multiples ought to come in substantially, but they might not. It's really, really hard to say with any certainty what the markets do, what they think, you know, sort of ultimately happens, what the supply and demand picture looks like, whether in fact people in the markets become habituated to a five and a half funds rate. Again, people begin resume borrowing and lending. The money supply doesn't continue to decline. You know, that could certainly happen, though I do think the probability is that a funds rate with a five handle continues to quash the level of borrowing and lending, though without a contagion of accidents. The last scenario is that the inflationary forces reassert themselves in a meaningful way. Inflation expectations become entrenched. Business strategy is, is to raise prices uh, faster than costs go up. Consumer strategy is to buy now, not retrench. Savings rates um, don't go up, etc. And the Fed watching and not realizing that they're in a stagflation trap raises the funds rate above six. The Fed concludes that you know they have to break things, uh, damage the economy significantly to bring inflation down. And Jerome Powell imagines that he can be Paul Volcker and that parenthetically, Powell will not be compared to Volcker under any scenarios in that critical difference being Volcker inherited a mess, took decisive actions which perhaps were the thing that killed inflation, but at the very least coincided with the death of inflation to which Volcker is given credit, whereas Powell, to a large degree, created this mess on his own, and he will be blamed much more for the pain that ensues, and he won't be considered a hero for killing the inflation that he caused at the expense of the economy. In that scenario, pretty much all financial assets are bad. I consider the last scenario the least likely, but I think everyone needs to consider all three as possibilities. In scenarios one and two, I do think that credit will outperform equities, that spreads will, in scenario one, decline to historic averages or below. In scenario two, the most likely combination is that spreads stay here or contract slightly owing to an absence of supply and businesses prioritizing debt repayment versus expanding of capacity. And again, you know, I think in scenario two, equity prices decline. In the last scenario, depending upon the nature of the accidents and where they occur, one would have to guess that credit spreads expand. 
but that equities do particularly badly. It's a very interesting time in that there are both strong inflationary forces and strong deflationary forces at play. And we see in watching the volatility in the two-year bond that market sentiment can shift fairly quickly, at least to some degree, between the different scenarios. And I would assert that the outcome is genuinely unknown and unknowable. One has to just think that all three scenarios are possible and to make some estimations of the various probabilities and how different things do in each scenario. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.